I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Artificial intelligence promises to reshape the healthcare landscape and deliver new insights into the molecular drivers of health and wellness, provide rapid diagnoses of patients, and discover and design therapies that extend beyond human imagination. Swarup Kitu Kaluri, founder and managing director of Neotribe Ventures, is using his experience as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur to invest in the emerging tech biospace. We spoke to Kalori about the state of AI, the potential of technology to transform healthcare, and Neotribe's approach to investing. Ketu, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. We're going to talk about AI, biotech, and Neotribe's investment at the intersection of the two. While the Applying AI into biotech is not a sudden phenomena. There has been an emergence of a large number of companies that are applying AI to various aspects of the healthcare continuum. Where are we in the evolution of AI and its application to healthcare and, and biotech? I think we are still at the relative uh, early innings of the application of AI and machine learning to all things biotech. However, what's changed in the recent past has been the emergence of data, the availability of data that people can use to train their models on. So that's been uh, the uh, big uh, development recently. And is that primarily through electronic health records or? Oh, I'm talking about, you know, with various biobanks, uh, with uh, uh, biobanks of founder populations with um, some electronic uh, health records uh, becoming available. Uh, companies like um, 20, 23andMe, which was one of our investments back uh, from my days at NEA, uh, they've collected data painstakingly uh, from consumers who have uh, you know, joined their website and volunteered some of that data. AI is useless without data. There's a lot of excitement over the potential of AI. There's also a lot of hype around it as people tend to fail to distinguish between potential and the state of the art. How transformational do you think the technology will be? I think it's going to be hugely transformational. I think AI is going to accelerate the pace at which we diagnose and cure diseases. What does the biotech industry understand about AI today and what don't they get yet? I mean, I'd, I'd say the biotech industry has typically used a very traditional way of drug discovery, which involves a lot of medicinal chemistry, a lot of trial and error, and the prevailing joke amongst a lot of uh, biotech and biopharma companies is, you know, you you test a drug on uh, 
mice and then pray that it works in humans. And I think that AI has a way of de-risking that substantially. And so the biotech uh, industry is intrigued about it and would like to explore this. Um, but I think they are coming to terms with it and learning about it uh, themselves. So as you think about all of the different ways that AI can be applied to healthcare and biotech to address the various challenges, where do you think the biggest opportunities sit? I mean, I'd say across the board. What I mean by that, you know, when I think about uh, healthcare at large, I think of healthcare as encompassing diagnostics, medical devices, and drug discovery, not to mention healthcare services. And in all of those areas, I can see artificial intelligence and machine learning have applications. And not everything has to be AI. I mean, people always confuse AI with machine learning. Those are related, but two very different things. It's been a, a tough financing environment for biotech in general. One bright spot seems to be AI-related companies. Neotribe invests both in applied artificial intelligence more broadly, as well as biotech. What do you look for in these companies, and what distinguishes a Neotribe company from, from others that say you wouldn't invest in? Yeah, so our mission is to invest in what we like to describe as breakthrough technologies that stretch the imagination, uh, Daniel. And uh, about 60% of our capital goes into companies in the software world. Uh, I call it the world of bits, you know, up and down the enterprise track, uh, infrastructure, cybersecurity, AI, ML, data analytics, and some applications. The remaining 35 to 40% goes into companies at the intersection of bits and atoms. And uh, these are companies that are leveraging computer science, data science, AI, ML, computer vision to innovate in life sciences, clean energy, robotics, 3D printing, uh, and the likes. And so that's where computational biology or bioinformatics uh, falls squarely. And so that's what makes a Neotribe company where it leverages some computational angle uh, and, and uses that to uh, innovate in diagnostics, medical devices, uh, or, uh, or uh, drug discovery. And typically what we try to do is, uh, insofar as computational biology is concerned, we like to invest in companies that are platform companies, uh, that have a platform that can be used to generate multiple candidates, not just one. I think that's one area that uh, that it distinguishes us from other pure biotech VCs. Looking at the investments you've made, Neotribe invests in seed, Series A, and, and Series B rounds. What's the investment size you typically make, and, and do you participate in subsequent rounds? Yeah, so our typical check sizes range anywhere from to two and a half million at the low end to anywhere as high as seven and a half, eight million dollars at the high end. And uh, we typically are uh, investing at the, what I call mango seed or the series A. Uh, we do reserve our own capital for our companies and participate in subsequent round. 
our subsequent rounds. Uh, we also have a uh, growth fund that we call Ignite uh, that uh, we use for some of our uh, uh, follow-on rounds in the series. You've got a, a deep background in the, the world of technology. The pace at which biotech moves uh, from idea to product is quite different. How do you think about exit strategies, and, and do you make investments without a clear exit in mind? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that with uh, a lot of our companies, we do look to see, okay, uh, what are the exit options, whether they are in biotech or not? Uh, we look at what could be the likely exit options. You know, most companies get bought uh, in, in the venture world. Uh, there are a few, obviously, who have breakout success and could go public. Um, and so for our investments in the biotech area, uh, we look to see if there are potential buyers for this uh, company that would benefit from having, say, a platform company uh, in, in their uh, product portfolio. Um, and uh, that said, I mean, you can't over-index on what the exit strategy ought to be because that can cripple uh, the way you build that company. I mean, to be M&A is not strategy. Yeah, I'm providing capital. My sense is that you work closely with companies you back. How do you engage with your portfolio companies? What's the value add Neotribe brings beyond capital? Uh, I like to say that we like to think that capital is the least valuable part of what we bring to the table. Uh, we are company builders ourselves. A lot of us have a deep operating experience, entrepreneurial experience. I myself have done two startups in my career. Uh, back in the mid-90s, I helped co-found Healthion WebMD, which we took public. And then I was the co-founder and CEO of a company called NeoTerrace, which was the pioneer in the SSL VPN space. Uh, and that company became part of Juniper Networks by way of acquisition. And so, uh, and, and then over the ensuing 11 years as a general partner at NEA, uh, I was involved with, what is it, over 75 companies. And so I bring a lot of uh, operating experience, company building skills, particularly in the zero to one, one to 10 phase. Uh, and uh, that is the value add we bring to our companies. It's about how do you discover product market fit? Uh, in, in so that's, that's sort of the generalist skills yeah, we're going to the I wanted table. to get a sense of how you evaluate a potential investment and the, the decision-making that goes on at Neotribe. I, I thought we could walk through a few of your investments and, and have you explain what these companies do, what distinguished them from other companies you considered and, and didn't invest in, and what led to your decision to invest. So let's start with Empirico, which is using machine learning for target discovery and development. Why Empirico? So Empirico has built a platform uh, that uh, trains and runs inference on data from the UK Biobank to identify intracellular targets at the sRNA level and at the protein level, and then uh, designs uh, drug candidates uh, for those targets. Uh, what was exciting to us about Empirico was uh, that one they were, uh, the platform was working. And two, uh, they were able to identify some pretty rare targets. 
uh, for uh, diseases that are uh, uh, are either um, um, uh, diseases that have not yet been uh, cured. Uh, and so that was what was exciting to us about that that particular company. Uh, we also were very excited about uh, Omri Gotsman um, and Shannon, who was his co-founder, and Brian, his uh, his CTO. So these are all uh, factors that go into our decision-making, the team, the product, the technology, and of course, the markets that they're going after. And so, you know, there's a very sort of sniper-like approach that they take in terms of which targets to go after, uh, given the size of the market that uh, those targets uh, uh, represent. How about Plexium, which is developing targeted protein degradation therapies? Why did you invest in them? Uh, Plexium was kind of like an engineering approach to drug recovery. Uh, They had built a nanoscale platform uh, to uh, find these uh, candidates that could degrade, uh, bind uh, at the E3 ligase and degrade uh, proteins. And so that was something that was uh, pretty exciting to us. And we did uh, a tremendous amount of diligence, actually hired a medical chemist, a medicinal chemist to help us with that and uh, uh, felt like they had something pretty differentiated. And, uh, you know, they've now got a very healthy pipeline. Uh, so that's what's exciting, was exciting to us about Emberico. And we also were able to partner in both of these companies with biotech firms that uh, brought that expertise to the table, like DCVC Bio. You're also an investor in the Precision Diagnostics company, Billion to One. What made them compelling to you? Yeah, Billion to One is a very exciting company. A Billion to One has invented the world's first non-invasive prenatal test for single gene diseases. Uh, and they use a molecular counting platform, uh, applying AIML to that. Uh, and uh, co-founders uh, with MD, PhD, or, or other PhDs in biochemistry from Stanford universities and uh, had come up with this uh, platform and um, have executed marvelously uh, since uh, the company started and since our investment. And this is a company that is also using that same technology to uh, uh, build two oncology tests that we call North Star Select and North Star Response. North Star Select helps oncologists uh, select the right kind of treatment for a particular patient and uh, the disease type that they have. Uh, and uh, on, on North Star Response monitors the response of that patient to that treatment. As you're probably aware, uh, solid tumors behave like unborn bad fetuses, and uh, uh, they are also uh, shedding cell-free DNA into the host's blood, much like uh, a fetus does. So that was very exciting to us, and it classic a poster child for us of the of a, what we'd call a neotribe company in this computational biology space. My guess is you pass on far more investments than you make. What are the most common reasons you pass on an investment? There are various reasons that we sometimes don't get there. And particularly, I'm assuming your question is within the realm of biotech, why we would pass on certain companies. 
think one of the things that we uh, um, look for is, is there value creation in venture timescale? That's one uh, reason that we might say, okay, you know, this is not looking like it could get there in five, seven years uh, from our investment. And so we're better off sitting on the sideline. Second is, you know, is our capital going to de-risk this technology sufficiently that they will be able to raise capital at the next round? Uh, third is, you know, is the team um, uh, the right team to go solve this problem? Do they have the core competencies for it? So these are some of the reasons why we sometimes may not get there. And, you know, there are times when we are not right about it because we don't have uh, all the information. Uh, but uh, sometimes you just have to make some uh, decisions and live with it and move on. Any company faces business challenges. Are, are there challenges that are unique to companies looking to apply AI to business problems or where they are well-established approaches to, to really change the way an industry works? Particularly in the context of business-to-business -business applications, uh, Daniel, uh, AI does have uh, some unique set of problems. For instance, explainability of AI is a pretty big issue inside of some industry sectors because uh, AI uses a lot of neural nets and sometimes it's unclear as to what is contributing, what is the particular feature or factor that is contributing to a particular decision. And so uh, if there is some kind of bias in the data that you're training that AI model on, then that bias persists in that AI model. And so not having that explainability can hamper uh, your uh, decision-making. Does it make sense? Yes, it's, it's a, it makes a lot of sense. We've had a, a fairly difficult financing environment within biotech these days. There's, there's certainly been more interest in, in AI, but what's the conversation like at the table? And, and is this a, a good time to be the guy writing the checks? Uh, you know, I think in general over the last year and a half to two years, it's been quite challenging for young companies to raise capital. And that's true of even companies in this uh, biotech space and companies. It probably is a touch easier for companies that are in this intersection of AI and, and uh, biotech, uh, but not uh, that materially so. Uh, and, you know, what you also have is a situation where public multiples have come down pretty significantly. And um, I'm talking about revenue multiples of uh, public biotech companies. And so that has had an impact on uh, follow-on financings. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of dry powder out there that's uh, sitting on the sidelines. Uh, but uh, the difficulty a lot of later stage investors today seem to be having is uh, their difficulty in uh, pricing a deal. How do you price a deal of a company that is at the Series A or Series B? And so you're seeing a lot of investors do sort of inside rounds and notes and things like that uh, to essentially kick the can down the road, if you will. Uh, but uh, it's definitely a challenging environment. 
But what we're also seeing is quality rises to the top. You know, the cream rises to the top. And companies that are really differentiated are having a much easier time raising capital. That's been our experience. What advice would you offer entrepreneurs looking to raise money today? What can they do to capture the attention of a VC and how can they increase their chances of success? You know, I think the answer is actually pretty simple, Daniel. Uh, Simple, but not always that easy. It is, it all comes down to customers. You know, and I'm answering this question in a very general way, right? I think, you know, when you are able to demonstrate product market fit for your company, that will drive a lot of uh, investor interest. And I define product market fit as sitting on two legs. And Iraklif has taught a course on this uh, at, at Stanford. Uh, he talks about proof of value, proof of market. Uh, proof of value is, have you identified a use case where the customer says, uh, you know, I, I'm going to rip it out of your hands. There's a hair on fire use case. Um, whether that's use case or use cases, uh, you got to identify that that's proof of value. Proof of market is, is there a replicable sales model to acquiring similar or identical customers uh, to where this use case applies. Um, And it's got to be solved in that order, uh, proof of value before proof of market. And I tell a lot of our entrepreneurs, if you demonstrate proof of value, you've earned the right to raise a CVC. If you've demonstrated proof of market, you've earned the right to raise a Series B. And then it, thereafter, it's all about growth. And so, you know, what? how does one demonstrate proof of value? I'd say, you know, five to 10 customers around the same use case would be a great uh, example of proof of value. And all of them writing, you know, meaningful checks into the company. Um, and sometimes it may take as little as, you know, a, P, a paid POC, you know, uh, Jeffrey Moore talks about, what is that? Proof of momentum as another way of demonstrating proof of value. Uh, But so that is one thing that I would advise entrepreneurs to do is just be maniacally focused on proof of value or proof of momentum. And once you do that, you will attract, uh, uh, because, you know, I talked about a lot of the dry powder they're, they're dying to invest in companies that are exciting. And so if you're able to generate that excitement, then you'll have an easier time raising that capital. Now, it's also true that in this kind of climate uh, that uh, I was going to say, it's also true that in this climate, there is a significant amount of pressure on a value from a valuation point of view. And so entrepreneurs have to be success sensitive and not valuation sensitive. You know, live to fight another day. These are all paper valuations. At the end of the day, what matters is what is that exit valuation? Swarup Katu Kaluri, founder and managing director of Neotribe Ventures. Katu, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel.
Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. Thank you.